welcome to The Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey in Wellington and in London. We have our uh, co-host, Peter Bale, sidekick. You've elevated me to being co-host as opposed to just your, your, your glamorous assistant. That's good. Glamorous. That's true. Yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah. usually when you lie me down on a table and cut me in half. Ah, uh, yeah. No, good to see you there in sunny London, uh, heading into summer. Uh, with your greenery in the background. It's fantastic. And uh, luckily for us, we have, um, uh, by special request, uh, uh, Professor Robert Patman here from the University of Otago. Great to see you again, Robert. Thanks, Bernard. Thanks, Peter. Hello, Professor Patman. How are you? Good. Good to be with you. Good. And uh, plenty of action uh, this week. We're going to start off with uh, the latest on what's happening with Ukraine and Europe and gas and oil and uh, all sorts of all things, that stuff, all that stuff that actually, of course, matters to us here and now. And then we'll spend some time uh, talking about uh, the budget next week, uh, what's happening uh, with the housing market, of course, and uh, what's going on politically. But I thought we'd uh, start off um, and please jump in, uh, Peter, um, with. Um, Robert, uh, what was the big event? Well, we're going to get some gas from Robert. From gas? Oh, this is good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was the big event? What's Robert? new? Yeah, yeah. So what's what's new this week in, a, in the rolling um, disaster, really, that is the you know, war in Ukraine mm. that struck you? The thing that struck me the most was these announcements about gas being cut off in various pipelines. But i um, curious about your views. Well, I think that was a significant development. Uh, the fact that the Ukraine have apparently, I think, cut off about a third of the Russian gas that reaches Western Europe. And they said so that they've done this in relation to Russian aggression. And they also accused the Russians of interfering with the gas pipelines in the part of the Ukraine they're currently occupying in the east. <laughs> so that's an interesting one. I thought the other thing was in, well, there's a number of interesting things happening. But another item of interest was, of course, Putin's victory speech. It was much anticipated. Some Russian commentators thought it might be a signal for mobilization. In the event, um, it was pretty low key. And I thought, you know, I think there was a general view, um, not just in the West, but I think in a more muted fashion in Russia, that Mr. Putin doesn't look particularly well at the moment. But he said two interesting things for me. Firstly, he... Um, tried to maintain that Russia was fighting on its land in Ukraine, which was an extraordinary <laughs> uh, delusional statement. Um, uh, and, uh, and secondly, um, uh, he, I think, signalled that Russia should be prepared for a long struggle. Mm. And um, he hinted at that anyway. And the reason I thought that was extraordinary is that I'm, I know that many commentators and analysts in the Western world are anticipating that we're into a sort of grinding mm. long conflict now but you know i, I i'm skeptical about that i think that the ukrainians have a much better army than the russians and the russians are sustaining now really heavy losses um and both in armor and in terms of personnel. And I'm just wondering whether Mr. Putin, has had, he's up, his forces have got the economic and the military capabilities to actually withstand this looming counteroffensive as Ukraine begins to plug into this enormous 
uh, delivery of really heavy weaponry. And we're beginning to see the impacts of this. So I wouldn't personally be surprised if we're looking at uh, the Russian position becoming untenable within eastern Ukraine in the next four to six weeks. But that's, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. I could be well be wrong, but it's interesting. I doubt yeah. that very much, right, Robert. I, I haven't seen you be wrong so 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 far, or at least you know I certainly haven't seen you acknowledge being wrong so far. Um, <laughs> I thought it was very yeah. very interesting. The um, I mean, I always worry sometimes when I when I'm there's I just put my spin off thing spin off thing up for people, but I'm always nervous when we say that the Russians you know are being beaten back and so on because they have so many resources to throw at this problem. Um, but it is extremely interesting the um, the level of uh, damage that they've taken, particularly to their tanks and armored armored weapons. Mm. Um, and I saw a very good analyst, uh, uh, analysis this week that their losses are far higher, in fact, than the Battle of Kursk, which was the greatest yeah. tank battle ever fought um, against the Nazis and the and in, 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 in not to similar kind of territory mm. to where they to where they are in eastern Ukraine. And you know what's what, one of the things that's making a difference is these. Um, uh, shoulder-held and 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 very very portable anti-tank weapons, which have a have a rather alarming tendency to pop the turrets off the Russian tanks because the crew is sitting on a coil of all of their ammunition sits directly underneath their bottoms. And um, can you imagine? Can you imagine being a conscript in a situation like this where you've seen <clears throat> one of your colleagues' uh, tanks just out of out of nowhere with no warning just go bang, and yeah. you know that everyone's been incinerated in an instant or even worse you know but, but stuck Bernard, in that Russia doesn't send conscripts into into um, conflict zones they don't actually have any conscripts there it's all highly highly qualified um, professional yeah, professional yeah, soldiers yeah. are going into there so they wouldn't dream of sending conscripts in there or uh, no, them on the Moscow to, to compound this scenario though that the Ukrainians are hitting targets within Russia there was uh, the Chinese media showed a picture yesterday of a tank taking a direct uh, hit, possibly from one of these new howitzers de delivered by mm. um, the United States, which can fire up, can file precision missiles, which are uh, computer assisted in terms of the pinpoint accuracy, mm. uh, up to 35 miles, which the Russians have no answer wow. for. And it blew the torrent of the, um, the tank, you know, sky really high, high yeah. in the sky. And it's if you see this on the social media, it's an extraordinary sight. It happened six miles inside the Russian border. And inside I, I Russia. Think the other thing wow. is that the Russian media now is beginning to become uh, even the you know the state channel, the, the uh, TV state channel one, which is very much uh, mm. orchestrated in support of Mr. Putin. I noticed amongst the the usual comments about you know Ukrainians full of stuff with Nazis and uh, the Americans were sort of going to steal grain from Ukraine and all the rest of it, mm. apart from mm. the usual stuff. They did say that Russia's in a really tough spot now. Uh, one military analyst said mobilization won't work. Secondly, um, Russia now has to face up to the fact it's being outgunned, that mm. he's actually facing global, this is his words, global standard NATO weapons and Russia's weaponry is inferior by comparison. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I think we're entering a new phase of the war. And I think the real question is how quickly the rest of the world can get this heavy weaponry to the Ukrainians. They seem to be already using the stuff they're, they're surviving 
to very lethal effects. I, they took out, for example, yesterday in an attempted river crossing, um, the Ukrainians took out 73 pieces uh, of Russian armor. And one a Ukrainian described it as a duck shoot. Now, you can't go on sustaining those sort of no. losses for too long. There was also quite a, quite a nice line, Robert, um, that I saw of um, the Russians having destroyed some bridges in Donetsk as they were put, as they were uh, pulling back. And as, as the military analyst said, you, you don't usually destroy bridges that you intend to cross back over again fairly soon. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, very true. Um, it's interesting, too, to see that the Germans are now um, sending um, quite a bit of weaponry across. Even though uh, we've heard this week from Volkswagen that um, there, there are still a bunch of people in Germany uh, asking the Ukrainians to negotiate and to try and end this war to get things back to, quote, normal. It seems that the, there seems to be a bit of Rubicon that's been crossed for Germany and that they're now much more committed than perhaps they used to be. Yeah, I think though that, that I, I want to, in fact, be interested to know what, what um, Robert thinks. So I'll just talk over him for a couple of minutes to prevent him actually saying what he thinks. But the, you know, there there is going to be a, a great difficulty, I think, quite soon with Germany and a couple of other countries where this is starting to bite on the general public, and you know, there's a limited amount of time uh, uh, during which people will, you know, ordinary citizens are going to support this level of sanctions and this level of support for Ukraine as it starts to bite on them in terms of inflation. But yeah, the, the, the chief executive of Volkswagen got into, into very, very serious problems this week by, by saying that he hoped the, um, he, he felt there should be negotiations immediately and, and that uh, that was the only way to solve the problem. It actually sounded very reasonable. But, uh, you know, nobody wants to, the Ukrainians do not want to be talking about that at the moment. Although, of course, Zelensky also said, um, and when, when asked about that point of point of view of um, the bridges being destroyed, he said that there are still bridges open that we can use for negotiations. Yes. I, I think the time for negotiations has gone. Uh, I, I, the reason I say that, um, and I agree with the point that Bern has made, that yes, of course, the sanctions will bite and Western countries which are involved in the sanctions effort. But I think the pressures are going to be even greater on Putin mm -hmm. because... Um, uh, it seems to me that from Zelensky's point of view, look at the language of, I know we noted this before, but the language is now on winning, de ejecting the Russian forces mm -hmm. from Ukraine. And after Russia's behaviour in the parts of Ukraine that's occupied, the behaviour of their troops, it's going to be very difficult for Zelensky to say to the Ukrainian people, we've got to negotiate with these people. And the, the people who carried out war crimes, in his words, have to be rewarded with territory. It's just not going to politically sail. And the other mm. thing is, I think now most countries and most countries which have been supporting uh, Ukraine from the outset are now firmly convinced that the, the Ukrainian army's got the momentum. Uh, I don't think you tend to negotiate when you either anticipate a stalemate or you think you may lose. Um, and I, I think that the, the I don't think you could, either of those two criteria fit the Ukrainian perception of the situation at the moment. Mm. So personally, I, and I don't think Mr. Putin, he still has very grand goals for taking at least a slice of Ukraine. And he, he's having problems adapting to what's happening. But I think some of the people around him may force him to recognise reality in the not too distant future. As he gets back into a corner, though, is and we've seen that uh, the pressure is ramping up too from his borders with 
uh, Finland saying uh, overnight that they're going to um, apply formally for NATO membership and Sweden. And very quickly. Yeah. yeah. And Sweden saying looks like Monday is going to be the day when they apply. Is there a danger there that, you know, with him on the ropes, um, that he lashes out in, in some way, given that maybe he thinks he has nothing left to lose? Well, well it I was think very interesting. Was just, sorry, Robert, I just want a real expert to come on, on here for, for, for a moment, i.e. me. Um, it was very interesting to hear Dmitry Peskov, the, the Kremlin, Kremlin spokesman yesterday, saying that um, the, the only way to respond to Finland was through military technical means, yeah. whatever the hell that means. Well, that's the same phrase they used before they invaded Ukraine. Mm, mm. Um, but where are they going to do it? On an economy smaller than Italy's, an economy that's been brutally sanctioned. And um, where's the economic wherewithal? They couldn't even feed their own troops in the first week of the invasion of Ukraine. I think this is, I think this is uh, pipe dreams. And, uh, the, 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 you know, in a sense, the authoritarian regime uh, are slightly drunk on the idea that they can manipulate public opinion. They can get the West to self-deter by making tough noises. I think that Rubicon has been crossed. I don't think it's going to work. Um, the Chinese basically threw cold water all over Mr. Lavrov when he suggested there could be nuclear tactical use of nuclear weapons. Uh, can't see that happening. And you know what? Um, Mr. Putin now has made his bed and he has to lie on it. He's the one who invaded mm. Ukraine. And of course, what's the direct result of invading Ukraine? Two neutral countries have decided to join NATO. Exactly. So he so can't complain. It's the direct result of his actions. And, um, you know, the irony is he, he, he's, he's at, his re invasion of Ukraine has done more to bolster the West and NATO um, than anything else that could have been done. He, he did also uh, direct uh, uh, the gas supplies to through Poland um, to be at least one of those pipelines to be shut down. Do you mm. think that um, using those few remaining economic levers might be one way that he exerts some pressure without actually going to the extent of, of going nuclear? No, I don't think he's going to use nuclear weapons. And um, it could surprise us all by going ahead and using it. I mean, he, there's always a gulf between what he says and what he does. But uh, personally... I think Putin's in deep trouble at home. The FSB are smarting after he arrested 150 of them. Mm. And they warned, they said they'd be scapegoats for a mission they weren't consulted on. And they're not happy. And this is a key constituency for him. The military are not happy. Do you think they like seeing their personnel and their armor just systematically dismantled and smashed up? No, they don't. And they're, they're questioning the wisdom of Putin at the moment. Also, Putin shows signs of physical frailty. Yeah, so tell us, those tell with us. ambitions may be uh, uh, thinking, well, you know, Dr. Wright. he said he was deterring NATO, and yet he's boosting NATO. How competent is this guy? Mm. So tell us a bit more about this, this these reports of his um, health and, um, you know, whether there's a real prospect of someone um, uh, coming up behind him. Well, there's unconfirmed reports that he's got cancer. This circulated a few well, days ago. Let's circulate some more unconfirmed news. Oh, no, no, I think it's yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I think what's clear, um, he does seem to be, well, I defer to a medical colleague of mine at the university, but he does, who tells me that he has all the signs of Parkinson, holding onto a desk to mm. avoid being seen as shaking. And uh, I think he, his health is probably faltering. And let's be quite clear, even if he was in perfect health, 
he probably wouldn't be feeling great at the moment about how things are working out for mm. a mission that he's initiated because the pressure in these situations must be, even for a dictator, must be considerable. He always blames the other guy, but the, he's running out of how many people he can blame for the consequences of his own action at the moment. Mm. So, so stand by for another distraction, I would say. Yeah. So what, what should we look out for in the next um, couple of weeks, uh, Robert, in terms of uh, what the Europeans and the Americans are doing and, and also what options uh, Putin has? Because my understanding is that we're going to get more detail on the oil ban coming up this week. Um, Sweden and Finland will formally be part of NATO. I mean, what directions are we looking for over the next couple of weeks? Um, I think, first of all, whether the current momentum, the Americans are making, I believe, 10 airlifts of weapons a day, whether that momentum, heavy weapons, whether that can be sustained. Um, and there is a quite, there's a slight concern in certain circles in the United States that the Biden administration may back away because they worry about, you know, Putin taking some sort of severe action. But that's one thing to watch. Will the Americans maintain the support? Um, certainly the administration says it will. And as you know, Biden said that Mr. Putin's not fit to stay in power. And they probably believe that a Ukrainian victory, uh, that's ejecting Russian troops from the Ukraine, is a key to displacing Putin. Of course, we don't know who will follow Putin. Uh, it may be Putin Mark II. That's interesting to watch. I think the other thing is whether there'll be a further escalation in sanctions against Russia. I know that, as Bernard said earlier, that the, these, these sanctions taken will begin to have painful consequences. We're seeing huge rises in prices of commodities globally. Um, and that, that's not something that's going to be taken easy. And I think Mr. Putin's probably hoping that that will work in his favour. But... Uh, yeah, I think the other thing to look for, if I may say so, is signs of unrest in Russia. There is mounting indications mm. uh, of sabotage in Russia. You've probably seen these mysterious fires and mm. uh, strategic sites, and it's carefully targeted. And it's clearly, it's quite deep in Russia. It's in the Urals and other parts of where strategic facilities, places like Perm, where it would not be easily accessible to Ukraine. So... I think that's interesting. And there's also reports that um, many Russians have VPMs and they can actually bypass the constraints. Uh, the information attempts to control information are being bypassed. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is a the, the, there are signs that the Russians, uh, even before the West, will feel the effects of these sanctions. And that, yeah, I, I, I you know, I think Mr. Putin... If you're in his shoes, the options look quite limited at the moment. That's, um, that's very useful, uh, Robert. Th thank you very much. I really appreciate your yeah. time tonight. It's wonderful to see you. And um, uh, no doubt as we go through the process, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to you because uh, it's been one of those events. I remember way back now, would it be three months ago when we had that pop-up um, uh, uh, where we talked about this potential for war in Ukraine mm. and it's had such impacts on the global economy with oil prices and inflation and of course all the issues with logistics and there's I'm sure a lot more to go. Thank you very much for, for coming. Thank you. In. Thanks Peter. Thanks Robert. Well. See you later. Cheers. Get those Bye -bye. leather elbow, pa elbow patches. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we should send you some some uh, some uh, uh, some merch 
with the uh, leather elbow patches with the carpet yeah, on. Yeah, it? exactly. Very good. Oh, it doesn't fit the image. Cheers. No. <laughs> Thank you very much. Cheers. Yeah, no. Um, and and Peter, what are you seeing in, in London in terms of, uh, you know, how people there are um, responding to what's going on? Um, because I sense that uh, Britain hasn't quite had the same shock of the numbers of people that have uh, spread through Europe that you've seen elsewhere. Well, that's true. That's that's because they've had a, a, an almost completely bogus uh, process to 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 accept Ukrainian refu refugees by uh, limiting the number by inviting them to come and stay with Brits and then only giving visas to sort of five out of six members of families and so on. I mean, it, it's, it is a bit cynical. But the, the, the other cynical aspect of this is, you know, Boris Johnson offering defence agreements to Sweden and Finland this, week, Finland this week, which gets them a fabulous photo opportunity. And, and as the, the, the Finnish Prime Minister said, it, um, it, uh, the, this agreement that they've signed, which is probably meaningless with the UK, um, uh, will also will also mean that Finland comes to Britain's aid um, if there's if there's anything <laughs> happening to, to Britain, because that's one of the sort of uh, um, side plots that's going on here at the moment. At the same time that Britain is joining together with the rest of Europe to help mm. Ukraine fight off Russia, at the same time they're on the verge of a complete meltdown in their trade relations. Could you give us a sense of what's going on in Northern Ireland and what we could see? Well, next? again, it's, you know, this is, this is, you know, as, as, as people often say with this, you know, the, the, the Brits are now sounding like Remainers did that, you know, the, you can't, you can't hold us to these agreements. There's just going to be far too much damage. And it, it, the, 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 one of the critical issues is we, we, and we've talked a little bit about this before, but people forget just how, how, how brittle Northern Ireland is, you know, and how important the, the Good Friday agreement is. And and over the last last weekend, Sinn Fein took a majority, uh, or took a took took control of the um, Northern Ireland Assembly. Although, of course, the Northern Ireland Assembly is not in fact meeting at the moment because of the long running inability of the Stormont administration. So it's really being run run from London, <laughs> and run without without the sort of Stormont administration in Belfast. You know, this is incredibly dangerous stuff. So there's the provocation against Europe, but it's also the damage that it does within Northern Ireland and the Democratic and Unionist Party, the, the old Unionist people, the, the Paisley people, as it were. Um, yeah, not to not I'm talking not talking about the Prince's Paisley people, I'm talking about um Never, you know, never <laughs> exactly. That's him. That's him. Yeah, that's not Prince. Oh, is that Prince, Bernard? No. <laughs> you know, this this is, you know, they're absolutely playing with fire. And um, you know, Sinn Fein has also talked about having a having a referendum on uh, Irish Irish unity on the island of Ireland within the next five years. So, you know, we're talking the, about the breakup of the United Kingdom here, as well as as well as I say the um, the dispute with the EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol, which requires you know a, a relatively high level of paperwork on shipments from the UK, from mainland UK to to Northern Ireland. Because that's this weird thing we've got going on here at the moment. Obviously, you've got a border between Northern Ireland, which is the UK, and Ireland, which is in the European Union. And my understanding... Well, the thing is you don't have... This is the point. You don't exactly. have a border, actually. No. You almost literally don't have a border. And, you know, that border, that that separation between between the between Northern Ireland and, and Ireland has, has to, to all intents and purposes, ceased to exist. But the border that's there is, in fact, between... Northern Ireland and Great Britain. So there the must RSC. be an awful lot of unionists thinking, gee, suddenly there doesn't seem to be a real reason for us to be apart from Ireland. We've been essentially cut off with that border <coughs> in the sea from our, our protectors over, over, the, over the other side. 
And with so many young people appearing not to be um, invested in those great fights of the past, mm. you, you wonder how some of these older conservative unionists think that they can hold on and stay part of Britain. Yeah, so, well, they <clears throat> well they've been able to hold on for quite quite a while. I think the you know the the, the reaction of the United States is going to be very important to that as well. You know, I think I think that I think the United States will eventually, but Biden to some extent will call Boris's bluff on this. Yeah, I mean, how how involved or how um, how much risk does America see in this? Because it's a bloody nuisance, I'm guessing. Uh, but um, the last thing they want is, you know, two of their big allies in the fight against Russia, you know, who's virtually stopping trade with each other. It seems mm. one of the most mm. extraordinary prospects. Yeah, no, I think I think it is extraordinarily dangerous. And and yet again, it's it's just sort of, it's almost it's almost as though the Johnson government is playing these things for laughs. That it doesn't actually see the sort of um, long-term strategic strategic problems here. Um, you know, it's just another kind of EU EU bashing thing. And people just the the you know the Northern Ireland the um, Good Friday Agreement was one of the most remarkable uh, you know achievements. You know, started with started with um, John Major uh, and was and was completed by by Blair. You know, it's a remarkable achievement. And in fact, um, Jonathan Powell, who wrote most or who negotiated much of the Good Friday Agreement with um, uh, uh, for Blair um, and runs a, runs a kind of negotiation think tank, with, you know, is talking about the centrality of that kind of understanding for sorting out Ukraine as well. Ah, right. Yeah. You know, we, 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 forget the, we forget the diplomacy that goes into some of these things and the sophistication of trying to find solutions to extremely long-term and complex problems. And in London and the rest of Britain, are they still <laughs> tolerating <laughs> Boris? Because it seemed like the Ukraine war saved him just as he was about to get booted out for lying to Parliament about the parties. Um, yet the Labour leader, I understand this week, um, essentially said, if you find out that I've breached the rules on COVID, I'll go. Is he yeah, well, go? he doesn't really—he didn't really have much option but to, but to do that, particularly since he's a former public prosecutor. Um, but yes, that is—that's a very much a media story, really. That the mm. that the um, you know the, the traditional Tory supporting media, uh, the Daily Mail in particular, have really you know created that controversy. But it you know it doesn't look good. Um, uh, you know it it, it, it was an un, you know it was an un, unwise meeting for beer and curry. <laughs> and and the other talking about the media in the UK and this is a fascinating story that hasn't made much of an impact here but I was stunned to see um, some of the evidence that it looks like the Tory government uh, during COVID gave an awful lot of money to its mates in the you know right wing media what's going on there yeah it's a very it's, it's been reported a couple of times but again only on the fringes and and this is that there was a a confidential agreement in Downing Street that that uh, media would newspapers, literally newspapers, would be supported uh, with with some assistance during the COVID crisis. Now, I thought this was a really interesting, having been involved, as you know, Bernard, in the Public Interest Journalism Fund in New mm. Zealand, uh, and how that has become this idea of bought media in New Zealand, which is ridiculous. Um, this, this is this is both confidential, um, not properly reported. Uh, and you know, and the strings attached here are much more much more complicated. And um, you know, New Zealand, I think, can can at least say that the PIJF was an attempt to do it transparently. Yeah, and you do this wonder is, this is anything but transparent. Because um, actually, one of the pieces of news this week was our Auditor General 
uh, sending a please explain um, report letter to Treasury uh, over this nearly $80 billion that was spent by the government through COVID in all sorts of things. Including this week, we found out that um, uh, MSD is now prosecuting seven or eight businesses for uh, wrongly uh, taking the um, uh, COVID uh, wage subsidies and resurgence payments. But in Britain, there's been a much deeper and wider level of, uh, um, let's, let's put it this way, unaudited or irregular <laughs> deals oh, yes. that have gone down between the government and various friends of the government. Yeah, I mean the 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 level of abuse of the what was what became known as the VIP um, uh, fast lane for um, complete non-entities uh, to 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 get you know multi 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 million pound contracts to supply um, PPE to the to the National Health Service and so on is just extraordinary. Yeah, and um, you do wonder when this is all going to come back to bite everyone. Uh, I wondered if I could um, uh, do a non-segue, but move into uh, a non-sequitur segue. A non-sequitur segue into the whole world of cryptocurrencies. I don't know if this story is getting a huge amount of play. It is the, huge, yeah, yeah, in the UK. Well, but... I think the, the, the interesting aspect, Bernard. Sorry, the, this, and we're talking about Tether and Terra, right? The 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 and the the, the instability of stable coins. I thought it was very interesting that Janet Yellen talked about it this week. Um, because we're starting to see some potential impact on this into the real economy. Yeah, uh, it's it struck me as strange for a long time that we had these stable coins essentially as um, ersatz uh, cryptocurrencies, which gave you the benefit of the stability of a fiat currency, but the flexibility to be able to deal do, do deals in crypto without having to refer to the banking system. But it all depended on a complete full backing of that uh, mm. that that um, uh, stable coin with actual US dollar assets like uh, treasury bonds mm. and bills and corporate bonds, which is all fine, except one except of the, we don't know whether they have them. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, Tether, which is the main one, one of the big three, it is being very cagey about whether or not it actually has the assets. And, and it's not a small amount. It's 80 It's 180 billion, billion isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a huge amount, which if they don't have it, uh, is potentially um, incredibly damaging. You're essentially having a run on a type of bank. And as Yellen pointed out, and, and also the US Federal Reserve has warned uh, in recent months, there is a risk here that the uh, a series of runs on these stable coins could uh, overflow or bleed into the real financial markets because with um, tens of billions of dollars of assets where people are unsure about whether they can actually get hold of them uh, really makes people nervous in the way that people get nervous about banks during bank runs. Mm. And you could see, uh, particularly uh, with so many of the assets in riskier corporate bonds where um, upwards of, my understanding, upwards of 20% of the corporate bonds on issue in the United States at the moment, effectively uh, cannot cover their interest payments. They're essentially rolling over debt. And that you could see a bleeding of the collapse of the crypto markets into these corporate bond and some of these other markets, which could derail, um, you know, some of the financial markets at the moment. It's yeah, and I think, but, but I mean, it's 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 a slight tangent, but you know, the 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 very significant falls we've seen in you know the major the major Fang tech stocks over the last 
uh, month or so is pretty extraordinary. And then you see that start to come out, for example, in the results from SoftBank mm. with absolutely immense losses being reported by uh, Masayoshi Son's um, SoftBank. Um, and what, one of the sort of landmarks of this, I thought this week, was Saudi Aramco uh, suddenly becoming yeah. the most valuable company in the world, overtaking Apple. <laughs> Talk so about the real are. economy coming back. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, we all thought that in this era of climate change that the oil companies were stranded assets and uh, were going to be run down by these uh, big tech companies. Um, but now back from the dead, uh, the Saudis, who um, seem to be doing pretty well at the moment, uh, along with some of the um, the UK uh, uh, oil companies, uh, Shell tripling its profits from memory, and um, and really we're seeing the 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 old economy come come back, which is um, interesting. Uh, we, we're also, I think, uh, on the verge of the market's starting to lose faith in the backing of the US Federal Reserve. Uh, for, mm. for the last 15 years or so, everyone thought, well, as soon as we're in trouble, don't worry, the Fed will cut interest rates and sa save our bacon. And um, the Fed is going right ahead with big rate hikes, even though the markets are, for example, the tech stocks are down more than 20% from their peaks. And you're starting to see some you know, real pain out there uh, amongst investors waiting, hang on a minute, I thought this was a guaranteed thing. Uh, and we'll we'll see how long. Are you seeing much uh, commentary around the potential for a recession? Um, I see the UK yes. actually in March. Yes, well, in the UK in the, in the UK, the Bank of England has been has been forecasting a recession. It's it certainly starts to feel like a re re recession here actually at the moment. I mean, there's a you know, there's there's a, there's a certain. I mean, I'm, of course, I'm sitting here at six in the morning, you know, in a nice place in spring, but. Uh, there, there is there is a definite lack of economic optimism, and the uh, cost of living um, is you know is is really rising and affecting a lot of people. And the and the economic competence doesn't seem to be there at the moment in the at the government level. Because as well as the shock from COVID and from uh, the oil price and other inflation, you've also got a trade shock because Britain af after Brexit is losing. Um, trade from Europe with all of the uh, various restrictions on mm. um, the bureaucracy of people coming in. And then, of course, um, because of Britain's um, disconnection from Europe, simply because it's got that bloody channel, um, it's reliant a lot more on trucking and truckers um, to, to do a lot of the movement around their economy. Um, and of course, with a lot of labor shortages, they're just not getting the well, stuff. Well, it is, it is extreme. I mean, of course, there was a good story yesterday that because, because of um, Ukrainians fulfill quite a lot of the farm labor uh, traditionally in the UK that um, a lot of the fruit is going unpicked. It's also very noticeable in London, in, in London um, and I know Mr. Anderson or somebody will wind me up about this, that I'm going out to, you know, exotic Ottolenghi restaurants and things, but... Um, <laughs> It is very noticeable that the half million uh, Europeans who, who EU EU people who used to, you know, staff places are not there anymore. And they've what happened? They've been replaced. Well, they've the been replaced by a, grump of, a bunch of grumpy Belarusians, as far as I can tell. <laughs> right. Okay. Ah, yes. No. I mean, in New Zealand, we've just had the um, uh, unemployment figures three point two percent, and uh, we're starting to see a little bit of wage inflation. Not not a not a huge amount. And again, the focus. And, and Bernard, is, just but most importantly, what's happening to housing in New Zealand? Ah, yes. Well, uh, now that you mention it, it's always good to talk about housing. So we've got some big numbers this week from the Real Estate Institute, which I'm really surprised weren't covered very closely in other media. 
So the headline from the report was that um, house prices overall in New Zealand have fallen around 6% from their peak in November, which doesn't look too dangerous or damaging if you're looking at it from the from a, from a distance, particularly when ANZ and the Reserve Bank and Westpac and others are only forecasting falls of 10, 15% max. Uh, and even though volumes have really dropped off in the market, you're not seeing, well, in the public minds, you're not seeing really big falls. But actually, when you look into the depths of the numbers, which I did yesterday, you can find that in Wellington City, and Auckland City, you've got double-digit house price inflation mm, in the space mm. of four months. And uh, for example, house price inflation, or sorry, de deflation. Yes, yeah, deflation. So in Wellington City, <clears throat> um, prices are down fourteen point two percent. Well, nobody would want to live there anyway. So no, it's almost no, as bad no. as Christchurch. Yeah, <laughs> fourteen percent down uh, from October, and Auckland City uh, is down twelve uh, percent from November. So that is, you know, we're talking four months and a, a fall. And that's got to hurt. That's got to hurt somewhere along the line. Yeah, not everyone, of course, is taking those losses. Mm. Um, the people who are selling are the ones who are under pressure, the ones who um, have, you know, some sort of relationship issue or an estate uh, um, sale or uh, the very few number of bankruptcies and uh, mortgagee sales that are going through tiny, tiny numbers of those because the banks can basically just sit there knowing that just about everyone who who can breathe has a job uh, that brings in money if they've got a mortgage, of course, mm. and the banks can just continue to be paid. And uh, despite what the opposition says about a squeezed middle class in New Zealand, when you actually look at it, people who have assets and savings in the bank they're now $20 billion better off in cash terms than they were at the beginning of COVID. They've got plenty of money. In fact, they're spending less on servicing their mortgages now than they were in mm -hmm. March, April of 2020. And so um, for a lot of people, um, they're just uh, waiting it out. They're, they're leaving their is there house any evidence of Is there any evidence of negative, negative equity emerging with anybody? No, that's, that's the other thing. Um, even though you're seeing um, the few sales that go through being down more than 10% in Auckland and Wellington, you're not seeing the sort of um, what I call US-style rush to the exits where everyone who can sells does or every bank that um, worries that there will be a whole bunch of negative equity out there um, pulls the trigger before other people pull the trigger. Unlike in the States, we've got this problem of... Uh, of people being able to uh, send their keys in the mail to the bank once uh, effectively they're underwater. In New Zealand, that's not the case. You can't do that. Mm. The bank essentially mm. has got you by the short and curlies until you die, <laughs> until you die even if your house is you know, 20 or 30% underwater. But of course, because the house price inflation over the last uh, two years was so high, we're only talking the people who bought in... August, September of last year, uh, who are now looking maybe at um, negative equity. And a lot of those were buying houses with 70, 80% uh, mm -hmm. mortgages. So even if house prices are falling 10%, they've probably still got equity left in there and certainly don't have any problems servicing the mortgage. And how much, so how much further has it got to go, Bernard? Is it, you know, is this, is this a, a correction or is it, is it the beginning of a, of a much bigger slide? Well, I don't see it as a, a as one of those big uh, drop down moments like you saw in the United States or in Ireland or Spain uh, after the global financial crisis, where there was an enormous amount of 
unsold apartments and townhouses on the markets in those places where banks were under severe stress themselves and therefore uh, passed that stress on to their customers by kicking people out, by doing mortgage sales. Here in New Zealand, the banks are very strong. They're under no risk at all about themselves being in trouble. They know they're going to get their money back because they've, they've got their hooks into people's bank accounts and will always be paid as long as someone is earning a, an income. And um, they're under no pressure at all to um, uh, pull the trigger and create some sort of um, circular firing squad in the housing market. And, and, and Brenda, just think, thinking about the, the, the general economy, what, what about this border reopening and the, there's quite, oh, a, yeah. quite big steps on immigration, I think? Yeah, this was a, a big story this week. Um, I went to Auckland uh, partly to cover the big speech from the Prime Minister to Business New Zealand. In the end, she, she did it from Wellington because she was isolating uh, possibly with COVID. Uh, probably not. Um, we've had lots of negative tests, but uh, no positive tests because Clark Gayford was um, positive with COVID. She did it by Zoom, but the real news was uh, the. Or, or is it is it is it that her bracelet wouldn't let her leave? You know, her ankle bracelet wouldn't let oh, her leave. Oh no! Leave Wellington. You, you yeah. can't be reading this stuff on <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> no, no. Um, uh, the big news was that, um, and we knew this was coming. It's just a matter of how much faster it would be. The final opening of the border in October was always the plan, but um, the government's brought it forward to the end of July and have uh, loosened some of the restrictions on uh, cheaper migrant labour in some areas and tightened it in others. Now, for a couple so of years... what's that balance, Bernard? What's, what's, what, why have they done that, that balance? I mean, it just it seems, it seems to me that New Zealand really needs those people. Yeah, I mean, it, there's an interesting problem here that uh, particularly up until COVID, we had enormous numbers of temporary migrants coming in. We had more than 5% of our working population who were on temporary work visas. That's the highest proportion in the OECD. And uh, that was because for a lot of um, small businesses in hospitality and retail, uh, some in agriculture, um, lots of services, industries, cleaning, these sorts of things, you could bring in someone and they would be cheaper, they would work harder, they'd be more reliable than getting someone locally. Particularly if you get someone who is uh, uh, hanging, hanging on, hanging out for the hope of residency, maybe a student who'd come in um, to do mm -hmm. a um, business administration course. The classic um, scams that we've all heard of before COVID were the kids coming in from India to do um, business administration um, sub-degree level courses that were being taught in Tepuki. Uh, in warehouses that on the well, edge. You mean, you mean that well-known well known centre, centre yes, of, of yes. tertiary education? Yeah. Yes, by institutions <clears throat> that often used to, used to have names like the Harvard Educational Technology mm. Institute of... Being Harvard the aeroplane rather than <laughs> yeah, the... Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, it, in fact, on one of the streets in Auckland where you have a lot of these, um, used to have a lot of these uh, international education, you'd have uh, Harvard, MIT... Uh, what were some of the other ones again? Um, uh, usually there was Yale there as well, where they would mm -hmm. essentially use, use the suggestions you were getting a, an Ivy League education. But often um, these kids were doing their studies at night, but working during the day, mm. uh, often being taken in vans to work in um, queue fruit orchards, or even worse, the Tapuki example, that literally um, sleeping on couches in the 
in the uh, in the warehouse before working through the day uh, on on the kiwi fruit orchard. The government wants to stop that to take away some of the downward pressure on mm-hmm. on wages. And what they announced this week is that uh, a certain level of uh, skills could get access automatically to residency, a so-called green list. But taken off that green list were a bunch of uh, areas where we've got real shortages, nurses, aged care, these sorts of areas. So there's a bunch of people unhappy about that. And also the international education. Why, why did they do that, Bernard? Why, why, that, why draw that? You know, because you know, we, you know, we've talked about Chris Farfoy. What, what, is, you know, what is his, how is he driving immigration policy in New Zealand? Where's it so, going? So he's responding to the um, problems in the economy with high inflation. So there's a whole bunch of businesses saying, you know, I'm, I'm being hammered here by these uh, high wages. Please let me get access to these cheap workers again. Uh, but the government, and this has been a problem for the last four or five years, really, you can get the short-term um, pain reduction of bringing in the cheap workers. But unless you've built the infrastructure to deal with all these extra people, then you're going to have higher house prices and more congestion and all sorts of problems with the not enough room in the hospitals, which has been the story of New Zealand. And the government doesn't want to spend all that money on infrastructure. So they're saying, okay, we want to try and dial back the high levels of migration we had before COVID. The problem is they've got enormous political pressure coming from small businesses and from this whole inflation story, which they didn't have a year or two ago. And and so they've made these announcements, which on the face of it look like they're being a little bit tougher on some Mm -hmm. types of cheap migration. But when you look through it, um, there are quite a few exemptions. So one of the ideas was that they would um, create a new type of uh, visa to uh, bring in people with some skills and then set the wage at a very high level, um, effectively the medium wage, $27 an mm-hmm. hour, which is well above the minimum wage, 21 something. So, um, but what they did was exempt hospitality, uh, uh, tourism, uh, aged care from this new higher wage uh, threshold for threshold. at least yep. a year. And what it means is that the decision about whether to extend this um, soft treatment, if you like, for some of these struggling sectors, supposedly struggling sectors, uh, they would have to make the decision to either extend it or drop it uh, literally four months before an election. So you'd have to say that's highly unlikely. So um, what I think's happened here is that the government, conscious of really uh, worried small businesses around not being able to get staff, but also having to pay too much for them with big wage increases, are getting some relief. They're going to, be, are going to be allowed to bring some people in, and you're going to have the usual, you know, backpackers and students uh, working longer hours. But um, not everyone, and uh, I think the pressure is going to go even more onto the government next year as they get closer to the election. And that's going to, um, I see some of these um, attempts to restrict the flow of cheap migration will be relaxed, simply for the same old reasons we've got, which is that the government loves high nominal GDP growth that comes with growing your population and the amount of wages that you can tax but they don't love having to build the infrastructure to handle all these people. And of course, a whole bunch of um, people living in middle New Zealand in the suburbs who own their own homes are quite happy to see the price of their homes go up when there's too much migration and not enough infrastructure, or at least stop falling uh, quite so much. And also they get the benefits of these, you know, cheap and easy services, the Ubers and the Uber Eats and um, 
the you know relatively cheap takeaways and various other things they can get because of the migrant labour. So but it seems um, like a very it seems like a very unplanned reactive economy at the moment. Well, yeah. And, I mean, and can you maybe address the COVID COVID question? I mean, our, our friend Mark Dalder has been writing a lot about how the government has really just decided to to let it rip. Yeah, I mean, COVID now is uh, something the government doesn't really want to have to deal with um, because they lost it essentially up until September, October last year, it was a plus for the government. But once they lost the battle on uh, uh, elimination and then hung on too long, really, to close borders through the summer uh, from a political point of view, not from a health point of view, but from a political point of view, then that lopped a good five to 10 percentage points off their support. Now they're behind national. And the last thing they want to do is, you know, take anyone back into any more restrictions and they're looking for excuses to get rid of them to the point where, for example, in schools, um, there are real complaints from teachers and others that requirements for masks should be in place. And the government's soft peddling on mask restrictions in schools has allowed a whole bunch of um, kids to get uh, to get COVID and then pr pass it on to their parents and others at home. And so we're starting to see the cases in, in Auckland rise again. You're right, the government has sort of given up on it and it's focused on other things, trying to deal with this cost of living crisis, which we'll hear a lot more about next week with the budget, um, where the government's going to focus on spending $6 billion or so mostly on the health system rejig. But also on Monday, they're going to announce a lot more about the uh, uh, emissions reduction plan, because it has about $4.5 billion, the government, from the emissions trading scheme, which they're going to use to try to reduce emissions. And the word on the street, so to speak, is that the government will extend the um, half-price public transport fares and also extend the $0.25 cents a litre uh, uh, fuel tax cut, uh, because we're now getting regular petrol prices above $3 a litre again. And, and also uh, potentially bring in a cash for clunkers scheme. So, um, so Peter, your car... Which, which means you, you, could, you could just about set, send the car carriers um, from, from Japan straight back again. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because we've got so many clunkers. Not, not your car in Auckland, Peter. I hope you've... you've no, no, definitely that. not. It's a, it's a nasty little car, yeah. <laughs> so um, that's going to be the big news next week is the budget and whether or not there's any relief for... Uh, people who are struggling with these high prices, particularly at the low end. We're not going to get any increases uh, beyond what we've already has already been announced and things like benefits. And um, the tax cuts, which National are campaigning for, are very unlikely to go ahead from a government point of view. If they're going to do them, they'll save them up for next year's budget just before the election. So um, it is amazing. Do you get a sense, Bernard, that, a sense that, that the Labour Party has, or the Labour government has kind of just lost momentum and, and lost... Kind of not not so much the will to govern, but it just it just is it, it's got that kind of third term inertia and a bit of third term exhaustion. Yeah, um, but a term early, and I think partly that's because of um, the intensity of COVID, but not just COVID, the Christchurch attacks, uh, and just the way the government was was formed uh, and how it's gone for the last two or three years. Anyone in those positions would have every right to be exhausted, and I do sense a, an exhaustion there because not only have they dealt with COVID. And with um, what's happening in the economy and the Christchurch attacks and uh, the horrible volcanic eruption on White Island, but also they've launched, particularly now they've got this majority in Parliament, a whole bunch of massive reforms that take an awful lot of time. Uh, for example, the RMA reforms, you've got the DHB reforms, 
you've got the three waters um, reform, which is sort of uh, hanging out there now, um, a bit of a lame duck, but uh, causing a lot of uh, political grief and taking a lot of time inside government. So they, they are really, you, you do sense of sense of exhaustion there, particularly for a government that isn't really about getting ahead of the public or trying to change the public's mind. They always want to be one step behind the public. So you want to wait for the focus groups to tell you that you can do something. And when you're so politically uh, driven in a way, where you're, when you're so sensitive to the nuances of any little move in the polls, um, you can become effectively myopic. You spend all your time looking at your dashboard. And gun shy, yeah. Yeah, and not looking up over the bonnet. And that's been um, one of the problems for the government, apart from one decision. And that was, of course, the lockdown decision, one where they didn't have time for the focus groups and they couldn't do the normal political process. They were forced by the vaccine, so forced by the virus to essentially take extraordinary action. And, uh, and almost accidentally on purpose, they did something extraordinary, which they're not going to get much credit for. We've sort of um, uh, f- forgotten that now. Uh, but I think it's one of the reasons. Is, is why... there much public disquiet about the about the the the, um, the rate of deaths of COVID at the moment? No, um, it's become it's gotten to the point where um, all of the news channels have moved on to talk about other things. So we've got um, you know uh, dozens of deaths every day, and in fact, we're not seeing the stories of who has died. So it's a bit like um, the way I mean, the, 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 the rate compared to the rest of the OECD is not good. No, right now. But overall, of course, we're still way ahead of everyone else. Um, and uh, because we managed to get the triple dosing up to a reasonable level, we're not seeing this, these incredibly high spikes that everyone else has. Uh, and when you look at it, as I talked about last week, 36,000 people are alive now who who wouldn't have been if we'd had the same experiences as the UK. But it's 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 it must be galling for the government, which can rightly claim an achievement from 2020 at least. And now the public have moved on completely. Now they're talking about three dollar a litre petrol. They're keen for a tax cut, and um, their main concern is rising prices. For example, this week we had both big supermarket chains come out and. Uh, with public relations campaigns uh, of price freezes and price cuts, which when you look a bit more closely at them, aren't quite so substantial. Uh, So there is a real turning of the political focus away from COVID and very much on to cost of living and um, the hip pocket issues. Well, here, here, Bernard, the the shift in focus is to possibly the most ghastly uh, but entertaining um, high court court defamation that I've ever seen, which is the the famous Wagatha Christie, Christie um, case, which is two wags, wives and girlfriends, Rebecca Vardy and Colleen, Colleen Rooney, suing each other, or at least um, Rebecca Vardy is suing um, Colleen Rooney for defamation, for suggesting the outrageously that, uh, co- that, that Rebecca Vardy might have uh, leaked, deliberately leaked information to the Sun. Um, and so far we've had um, Colleen, Colleen Rooney's rather fabulous um, QC 
um, making Rebecca Vardy look even more ghastly and even more of a, um, um, let's say, a liar than, um, than, than she might have otherwise. It is one of the most amusing ones. This, I think we, we've actually possibly discussed this before, but surprisingly, a telephone that may, a, a mobile phone that may <laughs> or may not have had incriminating WhatsApps were, was you know, accidentally um, lost in the um, North Sea about two days after the, um, it was requested for, um, uh, for, for evidential, evidential purposes. And the judge said, um, so that phone is, no, sorry, I'm not the judge, the, the, the lawyer said, now that, so that phone is now with Dave, in Davy Jones' locker, to which Rebecca <laughs> Vardy replied, who's Davy Jones? Oh, yeah, <laughs> who, of course, was, you know, the, the little English guy in the monkeys. Yeah, yeah. This is, a, is, this a, is this one of these stories that everyone's latching on to because it's, it, it's not quite as gruesome and as depressing as everything else and everyone's just desperate for some light relief? Absolutely. No, and I, I think, and it's always, you know, great because you can, um, I mean, they are two hideously ghastly people um, and they're very famous. They're quite glamorous. Um, it allows you to dredge up all of the previous leaks. Uh, she also, Rebecca Vardy's description of, um, of Peter Andre's penis as being the size of a uh, chipolata um, uh, has also come out. Which is, Was this you know, in always, court? Always in Yes, yes, absolutely. Oh. It's always an entertaining um, possibility. So, yes, it is fabulous light, light relief. Um, it, it, things will flip a little bit when Hugh Tomlinson, QC, who was Rebecca Vardy's extremely highly paid um, lawyer, uh, who um, has taken a break from representing oligarchs in court to represent her, when he does, he does his cross-examination of Colleen Rooney, we, we should get the other side of that coin. I must say, it's, it's, it's much preferable to have a celebrity trial in the UK with the way the media cover them than the one in the US between um, Johnny Depp and uh, his his wife, which just seems more and more tawdry and painful as, 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 as we said. That, that definitely is tawdry, tawdry, painful and incredibly entertaining as well. Yes. So I think Couldn't that counts. to a pair of nicer people. Mm, I, think, I think that counts then as our um, skateboarding dog this week, I think. Exactly. Well, exactly. thank you, Bernard. Well, on that note, it has just gone six o'clock uh, here in New Zealand. Uh, that must be seven o'clock in London. Is that right? Yes, yep, yep. Yep. I hope you've had a great cup of, cup of coffee. I am um, happily ensconced here at home about to have my dinner. I wish everyone the best on the um, on the hoon. It's been lovely to have you on. Um, really appreciate it. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. Ka kite Thank you, Bernard. See, See you, you later. Bye-bye.